the Gerontological Society of America, Advancing Innovation in Aging. GSA on Aging. I'm Howard Degenholtz, Social Media Editor of The Gerontologist, publication of the Gerontological Society of America. This episode of the podcast is about the workforce and long-term care. The Gerontologist last year put out a special issue around workforce issues and long-term care. I interviewed Laura Wagner, one of the authors of an article in this issue, who is an expert in staffing and long-term care issues. And we discussed her paper where she's the lead author, Medical Staffing Organization and Quality of Care Outcomes in Post-Acute Care Settings. We also discussed another article in the issue by Kezia Scales. Is it time to resolve the direct care workforce crisis and long-term care? Laura and I had a very, very deep and interesting conversation about this important topic. This is one of the longer episodes that we've put together. I really hope I can count on your attention because I think it is really worth it because this is an important issue that has not gone away. Thank you for joining me today to talk about your work and the topic of workforce in general. Of course. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Laura, I asked you to join the podcast because I wanted to talk about your paper in the special issue of The Gerontologist on Workforce in Long-Term Care. So, in this study, there seems to be a dichotomy between outcomes for long-stay residents and outcomes for short-stay residents. What do you think is going on there? Well, what I what I see, and maybe you're referencing that the providers seem to have more of an impact on the short stay measures. Is that what you're referencing? And that makes, that makes sense because they're more involved in the care, the day-to-day care of a short stay resident, especially if they're, you know, Medicare part A patients. And so they, naturally would hopefully have more of an impact on those quality measures. They're less so involved in the care, day, the day-to-day care. It's actually, you know, month-to-month care at that point in a long-stay resident. Well, so in some of the ones where there was statistical significance, they seem to go in the opposite direction. That is, ratings of better informal uh, dynamics uh, within the uh, with the staff at the facility seems to be associated with more falls and yeah, that was uh, with the long stay. Right, with the long stay. And then also having a, a formal process for granting privileges seems to be associated with pressure ulcers. So you have on the long stay, you have some of the indicators that would seem to be from your theory associated with better quality, actually associated with poor quality. And then on the on the short stay residents, it's going the opposite direction. So I'm I'm very curious what what do we think is going on here? Yeah, we were we actually debated that quite a bit. You know, was this a type one error because there were so many mm-hmm. quality measures? Were were there sample yes. issues? So we were we were kind of going in that direction at the end mm-hmm. of the day. With and the, the other issue was just the sensitivity of the the tool. We need to do further testing of this of the medical staffing organization. Sure. You know, as I was reading it, I I was having the discussion, like my internal monologue was exactly what you just said, which is this is a type one error. And as a researcher, you know, I am always, when the finding goes in the direction I want, I think it's a true finding. When it goes in the finding I don't want, then it's a type one error, right? So... (laughs) 
So, so, you know, I, we've both done enough studies to know that we have to be, we should be symmetrical on those biases. So if we're, if we want to interpret the finding that goes in our hypothesized direction, we have to be ready with a reasonable explanation on the ones that go in the, in the opposite, opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that occurs to me about falls, I'm not sure about, about pressure ulcers, but one of the things about falls is that it's not necessarily an exam, um, evidence of poor quality per se. It might actually be evidence of lower use of physical restraints, lower use of chemical restraints, and a little bit more autonomy on the part of residents, which is if, if we're giving residents more freedom to move about their room, to get in and out of bed, then that enhances their dignity and their daily experience, but it also exposes them to some risk. Sure, definitely. That particular concept that we were measuring was more about the relationship between the physician and the staff. And it would be interesting to see in those facilities maybe that had higher falls, what was the relationship with the staff? Were they more likely to prescribe medications that could increase falls? You know, was there a falls committee and was the physician part of that or not? So it's interesting to see how how engaged is the physician in these facilities with these quality measures, especially some of these more long-stay ones. Yeah, like you would think that some of these measures, such as these informal dynamics, might be associated with some collaborative efforts around quality, which might essentially lead to efforts that have a counterintuitive findings. Yeah. Right? So like around like depression is one sort of a classic example where you, if you start paying attention to it and educate staff about depression and you start to learn about the symptoms and the treatment opportunities, then they start to see it more and code it more. And it shows the prevalence of depression. Will increase. Will increase on the, on the um, you know, in terms of the, the MDS assessment. So you start essentially becoming alert to these things and then in principle, improving the experience around these things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if you have a high prevalence of depression, if you think about it from that perspective. Right. If our, if our prior is that it's underdiagnosed mm-hmm. and undertreated, then the first step towards appropriate level of treatment is uh, getting, getting it diagnosed when, it's exi- when it exists. So the same could be said for some of the other outcomes that you're observing and what you're picking up is something about the organizational process that might actually be that might actually be a good organizational process. Yeah. Discussion point that I would think about with this conversation though is it's not a reimbursable activity for a provider to be sitting down and having discussions about organizational level issues. So mm-hmm. I think that's also you know, a challenge that we face is providers are very much focused on revenue generation and billing. And is that a billable expense if I need to come in and talk to the facility about how to work with improving outcomes with my residents on some of these quality measures? That's a really good observation. And so I've been on, just in this conversation, I've been on the train of thought that the way you get to having a good relationship between the physicians and the other staff is through conversations and meetings and focused attention to things like organizational approaches to quality, which sort of runs counter to what you just said. But there's another dynamic, I'm wondering if this rings true in your research, which is 
the physicians often have a lot of moral leadership in nursing homes and staff do not want to do anything that the physician does not approve of uh, with residents. And they, and when the physicians ask for something or put something into the orders, they, that is considered to be sacrosanct in terms of what needs to happen for residents. So I'm, I'm curious if you've observed that and how that dynamic might be playing out in some of these data. Yeah, I, other than the informal dynamics measure that we discussed about this relationship, I'm not really sure I can speak more about that. Other than anecdotally, I think what your observation is is very true as far as the relationship between staff and physicians is certainly just a very top-down approach with lack of less of less of a discussion, a back and forth discussion. And you're also dealing with a workforce that's that might be less trained in management of, you know, medical management. So if you don't have like, a, let's say a nurse practitioner on staff that can maybe help with some of those discussions that might impede the, that disconnect or in, increase that disconnect. So one of the things that occurs to me is you know, again, thinking back to findings around physicians that are employed, I've I've long thought that okay, this is this is a important tool. This is an important solution to some of the quality problems. And notwithstanding whether the the findings are ambiguous here, there's there's some you know clear signal that there are benefits. Why do we think physicians? There aren't more physicians in that relationship with, uh, you know, in an employment relationship? Is it the, does it have to do with the size of the facilities and the ability to hire full-time uh, physicians? And part two of my question is about uh, advanced practitioners and, and nurse practitioners. So I know that was not um, part of this study, but I'm wondering if what your perception is with regard to their role vis-a-vis -vis, um, quality care. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think to answer the first part of your question, I'm not sure how we can increase the engagement with physicians as employers of mm -hmm. facilities. That would, I think, be a very expensive undertaking if it was, especially if it was a small facility. Certainly, if there were larger chains, that might be more amenable to hiring physicians. There also is contractual issues around the reimbursement with Medicare. So you can't be employed by the facility directly with the Medicare reimbursement. There's some issues around that. So there would have to be, they'd have to be like a separate entity if they were going to be billing and stuff. So mm -hmm. I think that there are some issues around that as well that would have to be considered. Many of the physicians that were in this study or that, you know, that I've read about uh, in other studies are part of a chain of maybe uh, Sniffist, which was mm -hmm. referenced in, in the CATS paper uh, that I'm also an author on. That's another model of care where physicians are primarily only providing sniff level care. So they're not um, working in an outpatient setting and seeing patients in hospitals. They're only seeing long-term care patients and they might go to multiple long-term care homes. So that seems to be more of a model uh, mm -hmm. that's amenable to uh, the provider, the medical provider workforce. 
As far as you, you mentioned, uh, nurse practitioners, physicians, yes. assist, that we also discussed that in the in the CATS article that's in the same issue. There's substantial research on you know the use of nurse practitioners in long-term care, especially around uh, outcomes, specifically around end-of-life discussions, mm-hmm. uh, emergency room transfers, you know, and infection management and prevention. So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of research that's been done in that area. One thing I, I that we haven't discussed when we're talking about these quality measures in this might be something to think about for future research is when we look at the quality measures and the list of quality measures, both the long stay and the short stay measures, we might want to think about, you know, if we're going to be developing, if we had our ability to develop a new quality measure, yes. uh, if I have that, had that within my you know ability to do so, what quality measure would we develop and what would be part of that quality measure that's specific to, or that's sensitive to medical care? Mm-hmm. Um, so what would that entail? What would that look like? Because um, we don't really have one right now, a quality measure. We have some of these quality measures that could be sensitive or partially sensitive to the medical care that's being provided in these facilities. Well, we have um, you know, the potentially avoidable hospitalizations. Is that what you're thinking? Along those lines, or something yeah, along, more something micro. more meta, something more micro that's more focused on the actual provider engagement with that patient. Mm-hmm. So, uh, does that include polypharmacy, for example? Are they prescribing the right medications? Um, you know, is is that client on a beer on a medication that's on the beers list? So, you know, you know, there is um, there are some data elements in the MDS, and there's a little bit of work on this sort of a proposed measure around medication review. Have you looked at that? I'm yeah, I think curious. that only that only answers one piece of sort of the medical provider engagement that um, you know. If, well, you mentioned polypharmacy, like, so that was yes. kind of my yeah. Uh, that's that's one area. So yeah. um, it does the does the client have an advanced directive? You know, that's mm-hmm. another another area that we want providers to be having those discussions with all of our residents in long term care. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there's multiple areas where the provider is specifically in the position to engage with that resident on the quality of care and what are those specific issues and how can we kind of bring them together and come up with a quality measure that is provider-centric. What do you think is the, what's the goal there? I mean, to measure, uh, we want good quality of care, but, but physicians, as we know, are physician care especially for the long-stay residents, only a small fraction of the attention that they get. Where is that leading? Well, where that's leading is that the physician or the and or the nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, are a vital part of that person's care. And mm-hmm. so they need to be included as part of the quality of care that's provided in long-term care. And that we need to find a way to better measure that, whether they're, they're with, you know, they visit them monthly or, you know, less frequently or more frequently. All of these other quality measures, you know, we are very focused on the nursing aspect, the, you know, the this, this staff nurse that's providing that day-to-day care or the certified nursing assistants and all the staff, the nutrition. The other quality measures are focused on those staff members, mm-hmm. but less so on the actual medical provider level. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. One of the things that I observed in your analysis and and the findings is that the nurse staffing measure also seems to have this bifurcated set of results with regard to the long stay and the short stay. And I'm wondering what you make of that. My read of the staffing literature suggests, I think that those things are usually more going in the same direction. 
Yeah, again, that's where we, we were, you know, discussing what, what were the limitations of the study with regards to the sample. We were dealing with um, probably an unusual sample. These were providers that were in facilities that had, you know, potentially certified, you know, medical director facilities. So we might have been dealing with a, a facility that's more engaged. So I wouldn't, I guess at the end of the day, we were thinking that our sample might have been not the, not the a generalizable sample. Mm-hmm. Let's shift gears and talk about the scales article by Kezia Scales right? sure. from uh, PHI. So PHI, the Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute, is really an interesting organization. I think they do advocacy and they also, they produce training programs. They also uh, do some in-house research, uh, although usually more in the gray literature than the peer review literature. And they, you know, they sort of play an important role. And I think they're unique in terms of their focus on the direct care workforce. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really, well, the, the, certainly the title grabs your attention. Is it time to resolve the direct care workforce crisis in long-term care? I think they really uh, put their finger on it. Uh, what was your uh, reaction to this? Well, obviously, I'm in this workspace every day, so it wasn't surprising the scales, you know, what Kiza had to say about it. This is certainly, and this is, um, it's great that you're focusing on this article because this is really the wave of the future for long-term care and, and the workforce that needs the most attention mm-hmm. and that we need to focus on. Is, you know, I think the title is, uh, would not have been the title that it is had we not had a pandemic to kind of, you know, sure. throw us into that direction. So we're using, using this as an opportunity, uh, the pandemic if you will, as an opportunity to bring light to this workforce and the work that needs to be done to enhance the workforce, the direct care workforce. I, I completely agree. So, so Kiza brings up a couple sort of technical things around the workforce. And let's, I want to dig into that a little bit and get your sense on some of these ideas. The, the one that I think really is where they really lean on is this notion of upskilling and empowering direct care workers. I thought that was really interesting and potentially valuable concept. I'm curious your take on it. First off, in terms of how strong is the evidence base around upskilling and how practical is it? Oh, so such a great question. You know, there's as far as upskilling goes, I don't think there's a ton of research in this area. There's a few research articles that were referenced in the article around improving job satisfaction and job quality. But as far as workforce development programs, there's uh, has not been a lot of research done on upskilling the workforce. Uh, we have small pockets of organizations that do this type, as PHI is very involved PHI in this space. Right. Yes, as you've mentioned, they do a lot of upskilling, so I'm sure that's why it was why it was included in the article. You know, the funding that is not there, so how are we going to fund the upskilling of this workforce, I think is, is a question on yes. a large scale. So do we need a new Better Jobs, Better Care program? Do you remember that from uh, yep. Robert Wood Johnson? Yeah, actually, Bob Casey in the Senate right now, there's some legislation. I don't know if you're familiar with the current legislation in the Senate, the Better Jobs, Better Care Act. It's uh, Senate 2210. I think that's mm-hmm. the bill number. And then okay. Debbie Dingle of Michigan is mm-hmm. sponsoring in the House, the Home and Community-Based Services Act, Access Act. And so those two bills right now are in Congress, really focused on the direct care workforce. More so, though, is home and community-based services, less so 
uh, focus on the long-term care workforce. So I think that that is one area that, you know, the, the nursing homes and SNFs uh, setting was less of a focus in those two bills. And they're currently under review and for comments. So I want to stay with the nursing home workforce for one moment before turning to the HCBS uh, side. Sure. One challenge that true upscaling and empowering that I see in the nursing home is that is the challenge of rewarding people for generating new skills without necessarily promoting them out of the work that they like and the work that they find rewarding. I'm wondering if you have any, you know, your perception on that and whether whether and how some of these programs kind of dance that line. Do you mean, if I could clarify, if I upskill a worker, are they more likely, is there a turnover more likely where they're more likely to go and and get a better job somewhere else if I've then if I've trained them. Is that what you're well, talking about? Well, there's certainly a disincentive to training people because they might go and get a better job someplace else. But there's also this notion that what we pay for is not necessarily doing your job better, but being in a supervisory or management role where you're now sort of a team leader or shift leader and you're doing less direct care and more managing of your of other direct care workers. And then the work then is actually less rewarding for some people because what they uh, value is the interpersonal connection with the residents as opposed to being the boss. Yeah. There's some actually some research on that. Kathy Magilton uh, at the University of Toronto and Barbara Bowers is doing some research on supervision and mm-hmm. the role of the supervisor. I'm not sure they've done, they've been focused more on the nursing supervisor and less on like CNAs, for example, if, you, if you're wanting to look at the really mm-hmm. direct, the direct care workforce. I'd be interested in seeing more research at the CNA level the, or the LVN level. Yeah, and, and where this sort of came up was um, giving CNAs the opportunity to essentially be on a training ladder towards earning an LPN, which then kind of puts them into a different job if they actually uh, succeed in the training. So the challenge is improving their skills, improving their ability to do their job, making the job intrinsically more rewarding, but also also helping people do the work that they want to do and stay in the parts of the work, retain the parts of the work that are uh, rewarding for them. Is it necessarily a bad thing though for them to want to further their education if we can give them opportunities to? Sure, but not everybody wants that. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the that's the challenge, right? They want to do a good job of what they're doing, but they don't necessarily want to be going back to school. Yeah. It's not for everybody. It's not yeah, for everybody. That's for sure. So one of the other tools that is mentioned in this article is value-based purchasing. And that's a potentially very valuable tool, especially with regard to Medicaid managed care plans and the opportunity to essentially incentivize providers to improve quality with gain sharing and other ways to essentially share in the savings. So I'm curious what you think about that and what's the potential there. I think we see some evidence, but I don't know how strong it is with regard to value-based purchasing and long-term care. There's been efforts in different states to do this in Medicaid programs. Yeah, um, still, but- still very fairly new concept, in, especially in long-term care. I guess my question around that is, how would you increase the workforce of, the C- let's say, the CNA workforce using value-based care? 
that's the question that I would have is. Well, okay. So that's, uh, I was, I was still on the quality dimension and we hadn't gotten to the uh, size of the labor force. I mean, I guess if you're able to use savings to increase wages, then that potentially brings more people into the marketplace. Who's involved in that though, I guess is the, is who's leading, who's driving the ship in that discussion? Is it the administrator? Is it the director of nursing? If we're thinking on the micro level, or is it the direct care staff? And what do the direct care staff know about value-based care is, is my question. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't think we know yet. And I don't think we know how well it gets down to the frontline staff. Like we did some work on some of these concepts. This was a really frustrating project that we did a number of years ago here in Pittsburgh, where we were going to do some gain sharing around reducing pressure ulcers. And the idea was without putting specific dollars around it, if the facility reached a certain goal in terms of pressure ulcers, then there's an implicit savings there in terms of the you know, the cost of care. So there should be some reward to workers for uh, having done all of the micro-level steps that are required to prevent pressure ulcers, turn a position. So the problem was that once, um, once they reached the goal, the administration decided what the reward should be instead of letting the workers choose the reward. So the gain sharing was sort of undermined and the empowerment aspect of it was kind of undermined. Yeah, totally. So do we need to have nursing homes be like co-op, co-op facilities where the workers actually own, I mean, that's thinking big, but the workers are in charge of, of the facility and they are part ownership. I mean, well, what a great concept. That would totally, I, that would totally uh, you know, provide value-based care. Well, we certainly see, you know, on average, higher quality care in uh, not-for-profits. Do you know of any uh, organizations that are actually on a co-op model? I'm not, I'm not aware of any. So I was just, there, there's a facility opening up here or has recently opened up in Sacramento, California. I can send you that. It was, uh, I was quoted in the SACB article. It was a group of nurses came together and they are running this facility and the nurses are all part owners of this facility. So you know, it's analogous to the uh, physician-led ACOs where better outcomes have been seen in the physician-owned organizations as opposed to the hospital organizations. Yeah. So how can we empower direct care workers? How can we empower nurses, even mm-hmm. even physicians, if they're, you know, want to be part of this? I, I see that as value-based care. And that, that's the only way to, if we want to infiltrate a value-based care model in long-term care, because otherwise, as you mentioned, it's just going to go uh, at the top. The administration is going to be the one or the owner of the organization right. is going to be the one who's going to determine where that, that money is funneled to. So turning to HCBS, there's one challenge that I see in applying some of these concepts in the HCBS side, both the upskilling and the value-based payment models really, I think, rely on the agency-based delivery of care. And I don't see how you can apply those in the consumer-directed model of care. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not as well-versed in that um, financial model of home and community-based service, so I can't speak too much on that. But it does make sense what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, be more challenging, certainly, especially with agencies. Yeah, well, with the agency, I mean, you can, if the agency is getting incentive payments 
for improving quality or maintaining quality, then they can pass that savings on to the workers. The dri- uh, and do the they? Directorate workers yeah. in terms of wages. Well, this is all a hypothesis. I don't yeah. Think. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's the, the thinking, you know, the philosophy here. And likewise, likewise, the agency is a vector for the kind of training that is part of the, the upscaling uh, philosophy, uh, because that's, you would have sort of the economies of scale to actually deliver some kind of training and hire, train, and recruit workers based on their you know accomplishment of the type of learning but on the direct care on the consumer directed model it's a individual consumer hiring and training their and paying their own individual worker so it's not clear who would be doing the upskilling there and it's not clear who would be doing the value-based payment and who would be managing that and determining those outcomes in that uh, in that type of setting. Yeah, we did a really innovative project here I was part of with Joanne Spetz uh, called Support at Home. It was mm-hmm. a, a home care voucher program for people who were not Medicaid for eligible, Medicaid eligible um, in-home support services, but also need, still need, they were like middle income San Franciscans. Mm-hmm. And as you mm-hmm. know, San Francisco is the most expensive city in the United yeah, States. So we're talking to live low in. six figures income. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And so they provide a home care voucher program where they can hire direct consumer directed care. And as part of that program, there was training involved for the actual direct care workers, but that was part of funding that the city provided. Mm -hmm. And so there was an entity that was providing care to help upskill the worker. Some of them were family caregivers even, but you would have to have somebody that would be part of the, the training and the upskilling of the workforce. Definitely. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge, right? There has to be some kind of intermediary or organization. So without kind of reproducing the agency model, there needs to be some sort of network that's that's providing the training and some obligation to participate in the training that's available. So I think that's that's kind of the challenge, especially when we're talking about you know hiring a family member, people who live in uh, rural communities. They don't necessarily have the time or energy or resources to do the training. So I don't think we've solved all the problems. Yeah, no, that this this is going to be a bit, especially now with uh, you know we are expected to add 1.3 million more jobs by 2028 to the, this workforce with home care jobs. So we have to do something about this. Um, we're working on a study right now with the rural home care workforce with these mm-hmm. these workers. And it is really, really, really hard to get you know a, a direct care worker into the rural health sector, mm-hmm. just getting somebody out there. So that's uh, an area that I see as a future need. So that 1 million workers and then scales also sites about a churn of about 7 million workers. So it's not just 1 million new jobs, it's 8 million hires that have to yep. take place. Because and of the turnover. Yeah, because of the turnover. Because some of those, you know, assuming a lot of those people are leaving this profession and going into a different profession. Yeah, so- we... 
We've seen that with the pandemic, actually. There were so many job losses in other sectors, such as like the restaurant industry, when restaurants mm-hmm. were closed, that you know some workers were, were shifting over to jobs that were available, such as in yes. home care and long-term care. Um, and I think this is mentioned in the Scales article, you know, that's a short-term solution. Yes. We need, and that's why you've mentioned the upskilling is like, how can we improve working conditions for these this workforce in order to make it a, a place that they want to stay? Mm-hmm. And it's so, only upskilling is only one area of that. It's it's also work environments. Right. So what do you think? I mean, where do you think these workers are going to come from? What what do you think is the are some of the solutions we have? The, these numbers are obviously built off of uh, demographic trends in the aging population in terms of increased demand for long-term care and also the long-term trend towards home and community-based services. But where where are these workers going to come from? Are we training them? Are they are they coming out of vocational schools? Like we're like there are all these. You know, there's all of this talk about making community college free for people, yep. and that's where a lot of this training, you know, where you can get some of the training to do of this work yeah. comes from. Yeah, you, you and I are on the same. <laughs> so I was just gonna, I was gonna mention Jill Biden's proposal for, you know, obviously she's very devoted to the community college uh, mm-hmm. community, so the, the her college plan is certainly an area. Um, many of our LVN programs or LPN programs are in community colleges, or right. our associate degree RN programs are in community colleges. So that's and they're in the community. So that's a pipeline for this workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one area. Do you, clearly wages have to be part of that conversation. Do you think wages, I don't know offhand, do you think wages are higher in home care than in uh, nursing facility care? Maybe they should be. Yeah, we did a study with nurses um, looking at the NSSRN data from 2018 and found that it was slightly higher in home care um, than it was in long What about for AIDS, uh, personal care AIDS versus... uh, you know, CNAs. Yeah, that would that would be a good study to look at, to look across sectors with that level of, of worker, certainly. Wages yeah. is probably uh, one of the biggest issues is is low wages, I would say, the, the fundamental issue. And I think that's why uh, we have Congress people like Debbie Dingell and Bob Casey wanting to expand mm-hmm. uh, and mandate, you know, these Medicaid reimbursements for HCBS so that if we can get greater reimbursement for Medicaid, then hopefully then we can have higher wages for the workers. So this brings us to immigration. I don't think scales really got into immigration in a lot of depth, but what do you think is the prospect for immigration or work permits or new creative approaches to expanding the workforce, setting it, bracketing the uh, political challenges. What do you think of the sort of technical, practical and quality implications? And then let's circle back to the uh, political. Sure. Yeah, well, certainly the long-term care workforce relies heavily currently on an immigrant workforce. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to see, this was something I've wanted to study you know, in the past four years was what has been the impact of our previous administration's immigration policies and how did those policies impact our ability to hire within the long-term care workforce? So did it decrease our ability to hire workers into the workforce if we didn't have as much of an immigration stream coming into the United States? So that's something that might be an area of interest of research for somebody, 
you know, the other area that I see, not only with the immigrant immigrant workforce, but also people of color are a, a large proportion of workers in the long-term care workforce. Yes. And so I think that those groups come together. There is some overlap certainly as well. And these two communities have especially been impacted by our pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so that's likely why we also had such, uh, you know, epidemics of cases in long-term care because our workforce, immigrant workforce, people of color primarily affected by the pandemic, they're working in long-term care. So it's kind of a double hit because on the one hand, we've had a, a political mood that has really de-emphasized immigration, has not wanted to see more immigration, has reduced the number of people immigrating. And at the same time, we had the pandemic, which reduced or essentially eliminated cross-border flows of people, or at least for a paid work in the cash economy above the border. So setting aside the pandemic, because we don't know when that's going to resolve, what kind of immigration policies might ameliorate some of the long-term care workforce challenges. Yeah, so we have wor certainly worker permits programs. Mm -hmm. There's also been, if you look at the almost exploitation of nurses from the Philippines. Though those uh, recruitment efforts that occurred in the 90s and you know still occur today, primarily focused on hospital nurses and less so on, on long-term care. So when when I when I look for ideas around long-term care, I often see what my uh, colleagues in the hospital are doing. And I've certainly done that in the past mm -hmm. year. Like what kind of supports are hospital administration, what kind of supports are they providing their staff during the mm -hmm. pandemic? And and, and yeah. so we're actually we're actually doing a study as an aside. We're looking to see, hey, what kind of supports were long-term care staff getting during the pandemic? Were they getting mm -hmm. their meal, meals covered and parking covered and <laughs> and all of this like they were in the hazard pay? So um, you know, that's yeah. also been brought up in the scales article. So um, yeah, are you seeing any of that? Yeah, very little in long-term care. Yeah, you know, the thing yes. that I was thinking about during the, at the height of the pandemic last summer was family housing for long-term care workers as a way to say, hey, look, this isn't going to last forever, but it's going to last a long time. And the most important thing that we can do is to sequester the workforce. Yep. yep. And, and it has to be a housing, uh, I'm sorry, a family-based policy, not an individual policy. And I have not heard of any localities really doing that. Yeah. So if a family member of a long-term care worker was tested positive, was that worker able to go to a hotel for 10 days and, you know, be quarantined from their family members so that they could still work at the facility? Or I know here in San Francisco with the nurses, nurses were able to just sign up and go and stay in hospitals whenever they wanted to. And so what kinds of... But if that yeah. nurse is caring for an, an elderly parent, and the elderly parent is the one that's that has COVID. Yeah, uh, the nurse can't just go and stay in a hotel for ten days. Yeah. Good point. Um, because they're also a primary caregiver, so they're kind of. And I think that's even more, you know, impacted in the nursing home workforce. Yes. Where, so who? What kind of family leave or? What, what kind of family leave options are available, for example, for workers or, or sick leave uh, options even? I was kind of going in another direction, which is we can't afford to let people go offline. So we bring the whole family into an apartment uh, mm -hmm. setting and even do it prospectively. 
and say, okay, none of you guys are sick, but we're going to, we're going to have to take you out of your community and give you the supports that you need for two, three, six months so that you can work, but then you're not circulating in the community and exposing yourself or family members, the direct family members of the worker are exposing themselves yeah. to COVID in the community. Wonderful concept. I would love, <laughs> I would love to know if any of that happened yeah, or is happening. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. by a, is what, what, what stories are we seeing out there that facilities are supporting our staff? Because mm-hmm. the stories that we're hearing is uh, the mental health impacts, especially burnout that mm-hmm. this is having on our, on our workforce. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to see some positive stories of support. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen them yet. <laughs> so, so Laura, what are you working on now? Oh, too many things. <laughs> um, I've mentioned a few of them already. Uh, as I said, we're a lot of the projects we do these short turnaround projects with uh, our workforce center. One of the studies that I'm, as I mentioned before, that we're working on is this rural health rural home care workers. So trying to get out there and, and identify who this workforce is, who they're caring for, you know, primarily older adults, people with disabilities, children. And so how do they gain access to the workforce? Uh, how do the clients gain access to a care provider? So we're, we're, we're doing some, some interviews around the country. We've even gone up to Alaska, uh, which is a very rural area, to, yes. to interview some uh, workers up there. So that's, that's been a great, a great experience. Um, cotton farmers down in Arkansas, we've, we've interviewed a few family members down there. So, uh, so that's one study that I'm working on. And I think that that's, the implications of that study will really come out with, you know, just like this um, HCBS a- Access Act that Debbie Dingle, is, as I keep mentioning, is going to be really important for, you know, policymakers to see the work that highlight the need for a, a stronger rural home care mm-hmm. workforce. As I mentioned, the other study that I'm working on is, uh, you know, how has COVID impacted our most frontline long-term care workers? And we're calling this study in the trenches. Mm-hmm. So who are those workers are the laundry workers, the kitchen staff, the CNAs, uh, the activity assistants, um, mm-hmm. and what kind of supports did they receive during the pandemic? Did they get hazard pay? You know, if they got hazard pay, are they still receiving hazard pay or an increase yes. in their wage? Um, yeah. Or did they just get it for the first month? They're parking their meals. Do they get sick time so that they can go get their COVID shot? Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, our immunization rates in the long-term care workforce are really low right now, and we need to do a better job of immunizing our long-term care workforce. Mm-hmm. And f- identifying ways that maybe we even that we can mandate it, like the UK has, and so so th- those are some of the things that we're working on right now with the, the current COVID situation. And as I mentioned, the most striking finding that is coming out of that study is the mental health impacts on this workforce. And so, how can we, as a long-term care infrastructure, how can we provide better mental health care to our workforce? Uh, so I think that that's an area of of further work. Those are both. Very exciting, very important studies. I look forward to seeing the results. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you very much, Laura. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today about these uh, these important studies and uh, workforce. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Howard. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about The Gerontologist and to read its latest articles, visit the website at www.geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 
to promote the scientific study of aging, to encourage exchanges among researchers and practitioners from the various disciplines related to gerontology, and to foster the use of gerontological research in forming public policy. Thank you.